Well, what a great opportunity we have <clears throat> tonight to just be together and to once again think about the grand subject of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the atonement that we have in Christ. Of course, we've been looking at this over the last several weeks that we have had time together in our evening service, and it's a great chance for us to reflect, really, especially this time of year, all that was accomplished through Jesus Christ as He came on that first advent to accomplish the great redemption, the the uh, salvation for those who are His. There's a whole lot of confusion, at least uh, in evangelicalism, it seems, over the last 400 years, probably, by which people are confused as to the atonement as to for whom did Christ die. And when we speak of the atonement, what we're talking about, as we have said over the last several weeks, is that in the death of Christ, a substitution took place through the death of Christ for sinners like us. And of course, like I just said, the main question that we are trying to give an answer to for our own hearts since is that since Jesus died, since atonement was involved in his personal sacrifice, then specifically, who was that for? <clears throat> who was that for? In other words, did Jesus die for all people, and anybody and everybody within the world who has ever born, who has ever lived, who has ever walked the face of this earth, without exception? Did he die for all people and thereby make salvation possible? Open the door, if you will, for all. And then, therefore, that salvation that is possible or potential for all is thereby activated or made effective for a person's life, not necessarily by God Himself, but simply by that person's act of believing. Or, or did Jesus die for only those for whom were chosen by God to be saved? Did he die for those without distinction, some from every tongue and tribe and nation, but not exclusively or without exception everybody, but those without distinction, some from every tribe, tongue, and nation? And he did that in the heart and mind of God, in fact, before the foundation of the world, and therefore his death is only for them. That's the essential question that has been in the minds and people have struggled with throughout the ages. This is the essence of what we are looking at. And we are attempting to answer the question whether the death of Jesus was a potential salvation, an open door, if you will, that had potential for all people, or is it an actual salvation for only some, the elect of God? And in order for us to ascertain the answers to those questions, over the past several times that we have been together, we have focused our attention on how the Bible describes or, or words that are linked with the description of what is accomplished through the atonement, or it describes, as we could say, the consequences of the atonement, the consequences of what happened in the death of Christ. In other words... According to the Bible, the atonement made certain realities possible. It accomplished certain realities, and those realities are described through certain words that help us understand the consequences of the atonement. And we began to look at those several weeks ago. We looked at that first word, which was redemption. <clears throat> and I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail. You can pull up the, the sermon on that some time ago. Uh, that we did that, but we learned in that time together when the Scriptures speak of redemption, it never speaks of it in the terms of a possibility or something that is potential, I should say. It always speaks of it in terms of actuality, an actual event. And that is simply to say that redemption is never described in the Scriptures. You will search in vain to find it described as some 
potential accomplishment based upon an actual event in time. In other words, an event happened and there is potential redemption awaiting someone who just needs to accept that redemption. In other words, since redemption means to buy back, that's what we learned, it means to purchase back. And when we buy back something, we are redeeming it from its owner, from its current owner. Therefore, in the buying transaction, we become the new owner. That's the idea of redemption on a just a basic level. So upon the act of the transi- transaction being made, the payment being made, then redemption takes place. So it's, it's not hypothetical, it is not potential, it is not maybe, it is not if someone would, it is not if the person being or the thing being redeemed would just accept the fact that they are redeemed. No, it is always an actual happening. There's always redemption that actually happens. And so if we just simply answer the question based upon that, it seems rather odd to say that that Jesus Christ redeemed all people because all people are not saved. And if redemption is an actuality, then this, that, and that alone seems to undermine, at the very least, the reality that Christ's death was a death on which was for all people. If his death meant buying back, then his death meant redeeming. And if redemption is actual, then all people are redeemed, if that is the case. And so this truth becomes one of the driving forces behind the meaning of the atonement in the Bible, particularly atonement through the death of Christ. There are atonement that happen in Scripture in various forms, particularly in the Old Testament where you see the sacrificial system taking place, there was the Day of Atonement. And when someone brought a sacrifice, an atonement was made. The, the animal took on the or made the atonement for those people. The, the, the animal, in one sense, was the payment, was the price paid. So when the Bible says that Jesus Christ has redeemed us, us being those whom he is saving, those whom he has chosen to save, it speaks in such a way as to mean that it is not hypothetical. It is not a potential. It is not simply an open door that we must accept from the perspective of God. It is always actual. It has happened. He actually redeemed us. And remember... When we were studying the term redemption, we said that the opposite implication also could not be true. What do I mean? That a man man cannot redeem himself. The object being redeemed could not redeem himself through becoming willing to be redeemed. Right? In other words, salvation cannot be activated by the willingness of the human person. It cannot be activated by a willingness on the part of man to believe because man is dead in sin and it is impossible for man to believe. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's no sense in which man, by his own natural forces, can in any way turn to God. He hates God. So it would be easy for us to say that what keeps a person from being saved is simply an unwillingness on their part. That's what many say. Well, if I can just convince them, if I can just say the words right, if I can get the arguments exactly right, if I can tell them exactly the things and know every gospel detail and all and answer all their arguments, maybe I can adjust their unwillingness into a, uh, an apparent willingness to come to God. If it was only 
an unwillingness that stands between me and God in my own heart, then Christ's death isn't really necessary, right? If it's only an unwillingness on which someone needs to choose God, then I just need to be able to be good enough in my argumentation to change someone's willingness. And yet, here the Bible says that they cannot please God. There is no sense in which I can formulate an argument better than anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth by which they will turn to God. And if you need an earthly example of that, just look to Christ. No one ever preached a better gospel message than Jesus Christ. And yet many refused to believe. So if willingness was the issue, then all I needed to do was convince them that would solve the problem. If that was the only barrier between God and myself, if it were only my unwillingness, then I just need to have my willingness adjusted. But the death of Christ deals more with just our attitude or our unwillingness to God. It certainly deals with that. Certainly changes the reality of our flesh when God draws us to himself and gives us faith to believe, we can please God once we know Jesus Christ. But it deals with more than that, the death of Christ. There are greater barriers between us and God than simply our unwillingness to come to him. And we saw that uh, a few times ago when we were looking at this. We learned that the Bible says that we are slaves of sin. Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That's why man is not just sick. He is not just a little bit ill. He is not a good person who just needs to realize that, that God loves him and he needs to come to God and he needs to choose God and make God his friend. No, he is a slave to sin, the Bible says. That's a problem. He is a slave to Satan, Ephesians 2 says. He's under the prince of the power of the air, the one who is is, uh, orchestrating the lives of the sons of disobedience, Paul says, in which all of us once walked. And therefore, because of that, we are under the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God is a wrathful God. God is, has us under His judgment. That is a barrier. We are slaves to sin and we are slaves to Satan. So if the death of Christ, if the atonement, is to bring us to God, then it needs to deal with those barriers. And actual redemption deals with them. Buying back. God buys us through Christ, buys us out of the slave market of sin. He buys us from the previous owner. And he deals with his own wrath upon us. <clears throat> we'll see a little bit more of that here in a moment. But secondly, we looked at the term reconciliation. So we looked at the term redemption as an actuality, and then we looked at reconciliation. The death of Christ did more than simply redeem us. It, more, it did more than just release us from the slavery to sin and the slavery to Satan and the justice system of God upon us. It also removes the hostility, the enmity between us and God. And this is where reconciliation comes in. In other words, because of our sin, we are, are enemies of God. Prior to salvation in Jesus Christ, we were the enemy of God. If we do not know Jesus Christ now, we are currently the enemy of God. And through the death of Christ, we become friends of God. And not simply friends, we become children of God. And we saw examples of this hostility. Uh, we, we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, just to kind of show us the reality of the fullness of this, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, 
Paul, speaking to the believers in Colossae, says, here was your condition, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, he's talking about their condition, their condition before God. They were hostile, they were ekthros, they were uh, an enemy, an adversary of God. This is the word used throughout the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 10, Luke 27, where it speaks of enemies, right? Love your enemies. That word enemy is the word ekthros, the same word used here for being hostile. Hostile, alienated in mind. Remember in Romans chapter 11, verse 28, it spoke that way of the Jews in reference to the gospel so that we, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could be brought in to the family of God. Those whom God had chosen from the Gentiles, you and I who are here, who know Jesus Christ, we were brought in. And it was as regards to the gospel, the Jews were enemies. They were ekthros for your sake. They were seen as enemies of the gospel. They're hostile to the truth of God for the sake in God's plan that you and I would come to know Christ. This is the nature of all people. All people love sin. And to love sin is to hate God. Why? Because God and sin are at war. God hates sin. God hates sin so much that He died because of sin, so that those whom would believe would be saved through the death of His Son, God the Son. So the person who sides with sin is standing against God. Standing against God. They're hostile to God. In fact, Romans chapter 8 clearly says this. And next time we're together, we're going to spend some time here in Romans chapter 8 because of the reality of this essence of this here in the scriptures. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 tells us what goes on in the natural mind. What happens in the natural mind because of sin? The mindset of on the flesh is ekthros. It's hostile toward God. So it's easy to see that man is Uh, an enemy of God, and we also saw that God is an enemy of man. God is ekthros to us. He's an enemy of man. The Bible tells us in Psalm 7 that he's angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, verse 11 through 13, God is a righteous judge. He's a God who feels indignation every day. People say, God is love. He would never judge the world like that, really. Psalm 7 says he's angry every day. His indignation every day with the wicked. Now, I don't know if that's a constant thing in the sense that every moment of every day as we know the day, But the reality is that every day that this creation continues to go as God created the days in a 24-hour cycle, He is angry every day. Every day. And it says, "If if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And so since there is a clear reality of hostility, then there has to be something that makes peace. We're at at enmity to God. God is at enmity to us. There has to be some way to make peace, and the only way to make peace came through Jesus Christ. The way to peace came through Jesus Christ who died in our place. If you're in Romans, turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, because I think the Apostle Paul puts it so succinctly for us when we think about this whole reality of reconciliation. Romans chapter 5, Paul talking about being justified by faith, right? We're justified by faith with God. We have, he says, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So right there, right at the outset, chapter 5, verse 1, he lays down the the gauntlet for this idea of reconciliation, which 
which envelops the whole doctrine of justification, this standing before God, this declaration of innocence, which is justification. But we have peace with God. Something that was needed, something that that had to happen, has happened, and it happened through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then much more, having been reconciled, that's a done deal. See, it's an accomplished fact. It's a past tense reality. When did that reconciliation happen? Well, in the mind of God, it happened at the decree of God to save, and yet in time it happened at the cross. We have been reconciled, therefore, since we have been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life, by the resurrection of Christ. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry that, oh, maybe someday God's going to conjure up something that hasn't been paid. Maybe we will in some way because of our foolishness and because of our sinfulness as Christians even that we'll become once again an enemy of God. No, Paul says, listen, we were reconciled when we were enemies. We couldn't get any worse than we were. And since we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, having had now having been this condition of peace with God, will we be saved by his life? You cannot lose your salvation because you've been reconciled. Now look what Paul says to us as Christians. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at what Paul says of the importance of this doctrine itself. This reality of reconciliation. Look how important this is. He says, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ. What is that? The reality that in Christ God has loved us to the extent that we are His, that we are saved by the sacrifice of Christ. It is this love of Christ that now controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died talking about Christians, not universal realities in the word all there. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. In other words, we're not measuring each other up according to our religious practices and according to say, well, yeah, you've done all this, you're more spiritual. Remember, Paul grew up in that kind of environment as a Pharisee. It was all about what I knew, how many books I read, how many people I could quote, all the rabbis I trained under. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Remember he said that? He said, we're not, we're not measuring anybody up like that. We don't recognize anything according to the flesh like that, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet we don't know him according to that any longer. In other words, he's not here anymore. He, he's died. He rose again. He's ascended into heaven. Therefore, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. Which God? The God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What's the word of reconciliation? Believe upon Jesus Christ, because in Jesus Christ is reconciliation to God, right? That's why he says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As through God, we are entreating, God we're entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, we preach the gospel as if we, as if all men could come to know Christ. We preach the gospel proclaiming and claiming that if they would believe, they'd be saved, knowing that if they would believe, they'd be saved. And yet also knowing that not all will be saved because not all are chosen. 
remember years ago, R.C. Sproul, before he died, used to say, if I knew who the elect were, if God had put a stamp on the back of the elect at their birth, I'd go around lifting up shirts to see who the elect are. But we don't. God has not given us that privilege. We simply have a ministry of reconciliation. And so the actual act of Christ on the cross, thereby dying the death that he died, reconciled, as Paul says it here, the world. This is one of those verses that we seem to think there's a universal reality here, and yet we'll see in a few weeks' time that that's not the case. That's not what Paul's speaking about. His death is not a universal reality, as if he died for all people without exception, but all without distinction. All without distinction. Some from every tongue, some from every tribe, some from every nation. So God actually, and not potentially, reconciled us to himself by putting his son to death in our place. The atonement. So where redemption frees us from the slavery, the slave market of sin, reconciliation thereby reestablishes the relationship. That personal bond between God and us, it removes the hostility. Now that brings us to tonight. That brings us to the third word that I want to look at, and that is propitiation. Propitiation. And I want us to turn quickly to where we started our time this morning in, in our scripture reading in our morning time with John chapter or first John chapter two. First John chapter two. Because this is where we we hear this uh, with with some clarity here. And yet at the same time, this is another one of those passages that can be somewhat confusing if we don't understand the context. And we're not going to look at the confusing nature of this passage, but just the idea of propitiation tonight. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So there's the reality of knowing Jesus Christ, right? Verse 3 of chapter 1, we, have, uh, we want to tell you this, what we've seen, what we've heard. We want to pro- proclaim to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There's this restored relationship happening when you come to know Jesus Christ. The Apostle John is saying, I'm writing these very things to you so that you know Jesus Christ, so that you know what a Christian is, so you know that you're saved because our fellowship is with Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're not saved, you don't have any fellowship with us who are saved. Not in that genuine sense. We have a humanity, a commonness of humanity, but we don't have a commonness of spiritual life. And of course, he talks about who God is, right? God is light. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, verse 6, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 1, verse 6. Then he gets to chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. I I don't want you to live in the way that the world lives. We are to live differently. But notice, if anyone sins, and we do, even Christians, we sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Well, who is that advocate? It is Jesus Christ the righteous... And he himself, not someone else, he himself, potentially, the door is open for him to be the propitiation for our sins. That's not what it says. What it says is that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is that. That's a terminology. That's a phraseology. That is a grammar of actuality. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And of course, you notice the phraseology after that, not for ours only, but also the whole world. So we, we can see here that propitiation is a, is a term, another term like redemption and like rec- reconciliation that deals with this idea of the atonement. And it, it is a synonym 
for appeasement, the idea of appeasement. That's what propitiation means, appeasement or satisfaction, satisfaction. In fact, some of your Bibles may have a margin there that gives you little words when it's next to words. You notice in verse 2, you might have a little uh, small superscript there in your Bible next to the word propitiation. And if you follow into the margin under verse 2, it'll show you the word satisfaction. They're just trying to tell you that's a synonym for propitiation. The idea of satisfaction. Satisfaction. Propitiation. Appeasement. We might even use that word when we find that someone's angry with us. Someone might be angry with us. Maybe we're in a relationship and and there's an anger situation going on and one person is having anger directed at them and they do something to appease or to satisfy or to propitiate the anger. To take care of it, to satisfy it, to appease it. Anger is turned away. It is satisfied by something that is done. And so we understand the idea, even in our own lives, even though we may not use that word. Through a party, someone being angry with another person, and the one person does something to assuage the anger of the other. Right? So when we bring that concept, that idea, that thought into our thinking here, and we look at what the Scriptures say, we understand that it is God who is angry with us. It is God who is angry. God's the one who has an anger issue with us. Psalm 7, He is angry with the wicked every day. We are those wicked that He's angry with. Well, that doesn't sit well with people. Well, you don't hear a lot of sermons about the wrath of God today. You hear a lot of sermons about the love of God, but you don't hear a lot about the wrath of God because people don't like to hear about that. They like to hear about God being angry with them. Doesn't sit well with people. Why? Because when we think of anger, we typically look at it from our own perspective. We typically look at it from the human perspective, and that's the anger that's kind of filled up with losing control. God is angry. Really? God loses control and lashes out. He operates out of this blast furnace of heat that comes out in a moment because he just is irritated that we have irritated him. Some kind of boiling rage flying off the handle and some kind of fit of anger? Is that what we're talking about when we think about the anger of God? No, that's not the idea when we think of God. When we are thinking about the anger of God, we this is why the Bible talks about it in the, the wrath of God, almost with this action kind of idea. Uh, but... But what we're hearing when we hear that in the words of Scripture is we are hearing about and and thinking through and being forced to talk about God's purity in character towards the presence of wickedness and injustice. Right? The very character and nature of God that, that is revolted by the very presence of wickedness and evil. In other words, it's not something conjured up as a feeling. It's the very visceral reaction of just having wickedness in its place, in the area. And you see this, uh, again, just referring back to Romans chapter 1, we see this in Paul's words as he's describing the reality of God in his view of man, when he talks about the bad news that all men must hear, right? Verse chapter Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed when? When do we see it? When is it manifest? When is it seen clearly? It's revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it's this natural uh disdain, if you will, because of the pure nature of his character. We see and experience, when we see and experience godlessness, then there is God's wrath. God's wrath. 
In fact, there's no more vivid a description, I think, of the wrath of God being unleashed, being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, than you see it here in Romans 1, verse 24, verse 26, and verse um, 28. When it says, God gave them over. You want to see the wrath of God on display against the ungodliness of men? It's God saying, have it your way. Away from me, do it yourself. Engage fully in your sin. That's wrath. That's the wrath, as I think Dr. MacArthur one time said, the wrath of abandonment. God abandons you. Gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so God gave them over. He abandoned them to their own degrading passions. Have it your way. And of course, women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And men abandoned the natural function of women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, and just as they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, what to do? Abandonment, wrath of God. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Do all the things that are not proper. So when you read Romans 1, you read the whole chapter, you clearly see that God's wrath leads him to no longer mitigate the consequences of man's sinful rebellion against him. God just says, have it your way. And men grow more and more hardened in their rebellion against God. The Bible tells us here that our sin is so, that our sin is actually storing up wrath, storing up this revulsion against this this oil and water kind of reaction between the purity of God and sinfulness, storing it up for the day of wrath, which comes at the end of history. Chapter 2 of Romans, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And since that's the case, that's the condition, the question is, can God's wrath be propitiated? Can it be appeased? Can it be satisfied? Can it be removed? And the Bible declares that it can. Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 2, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the satisfaction that God has given so that our sin can be paid and so that the wrath of God, His Father, can be appeased. He himself is actuality the propitiation for our sin. In fact, Romans 3.25 says that he is the one whom God displayed as a propitiation in his blood. He's the one whom God the Father displayed as a satisfaction. When was that display? When did that happen in time? When Christ was there on the cross. A public display of the propitiation in Him, in His blood. That's why John says it the way he does. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, some try to say, when you think about it, some try to say, if that's the case, if Romans 3.25 is true and 1 John 2 chapters, or 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 are, 
are true as you say they are, then doesn't that set God the Father and God the Son at odds with one another? In other words, if God is angry with men because of His holiness, because of His purity, because of the very essence of His character, and the Son and the Father are one, and if Jesus then swoops in just in the nick of time, to keep God the Father from exercising His wrath, doesn't that make them at cross-purposes? Doesn't that make it contradictory if they're one? And the answer is no. No. Why? Because of what 1 John chapter 4 says. 1 John chapter 4. Notice what it says. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. What's that? That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. What's that? In what is love? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as the propitiation for our sins. He sent Him as the satisfaction for our sins. So the one who's angry with the wicked every day sent the very satisfaction of His wrath. So there is no conflict in action with the Father and with the Son. A sacrifice was needed to appease the wrath of God. And glory of all glories, wonder of all wonders, mercy upon all mercies is that the one who needed to be appeased is the very one who sent the satisfactory appeasement. He's the very one and the only one who could have sent the only thing that could have satisfied His wrath, His Son. And Christ came, and in that act, the Father and the Son were perfectly together. God appeased His righteous anger by sending His Son to satisfy His wrath by the death of His Son. All out of an act of love, it says in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. God is love. Here it is. Here's the personification, the, the essence, the, the outworking of that love. Not that we loved God, not that we pursued Him, not that somehow in our willingness we changed our mind and God became attractive to us. No, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. Christ was not forced to come. Rather, He came also as an act of love. He came as an act of love. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life. I give it willingly. I lay it down willingly. No one takes it. Even God the Father did not take the life of the Son. He gave it willingly. God sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins, and Christ came willingly to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, now let's see how propitiation and reconciliation come together, how they work together. And I think the easiest way to think about this is as we just close our thoughts down, the way that we can think of these two truths is to think of them in, the, in a cause and effect idea. Cause and effect. One is the cause, the other is the effect. You say, what do you mean? I mean that Christ's death appeases the Father's wrath. We clearly see that from Scripture. It is through the death of Christ that the propitiation for our sins is done. So Christ's death appeases the wrath of God. That's the cause. That's the cause. And the effect 
through that cause, through the appeasement of the wrath of God, is this reconciliation that takes place. We are reconciled to God. We are no longer enemies. So you cannot have reconciliation with, without propitiation. And reconciliation and propitiation both together accomplish redemption. In other words, the effect of Christ's work on the cross, propitiation, was to make actual peace. The enmity between us and God actually taken away. We are actually reconciled to God, as Paul said in Romans. There is a relationship restored between us and God, His chosen people. And it is that by which He redeems His chosen one. We are bought out of the slave market through Christ. In the atonement is all of that working together. The cause and effect principle, by the way, is all over the Bible. It is all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Read through the sacrificial system that God had instilled. The lamb was killed to cover the person who brought the sacrifice for the penalty of their sin, whatever that animal was. And on the Day of Atonement, it was the lamb that was killed. It was always looking forward. It was always a temporary reality, always a shadow of what was to come in Christ, the permanent reality. It always spoke to what was declared in eternity past by God and accomplished in time through the Father and the Son. So it always looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. God's wrath has been appeased by Christ in actuality. That's why God saves any of us. None of us would be saved if God was angry with us. But because of the appeasement of the wrath of God through Christ's blood, we are saved. That's simply to say that from God's perspective, once salvation was decreed in eternity past, once he decreed in the counsel of the Godhead that he would save, it was as if it was done. It was as if it was accomplished. Done. And therefore God could speak of it in those terms. And then in time, he creates time, and in time, he makes sure for all of those he has chosen to save, he ensures that his own are called and justified and glorified, as Romans chapter 8 says. Glorified is a past tense term there. Glorified is spoken of as if it's already happened. Here we are, sitting in 2020, here in this building. God sees it as if it's an accomplished reality. Why? Because it is with God. God doesn't operate in our time element, as we saw in Second Peter a day is like a thousand years to God. Our glorification has happened in the mind and heart of God. And one day you and I will fully embrace that glorification. So it's an actuality, not a potentiality. The mind and heart of God, it actually has taken place. So it is with the terms propitiation. The appeasement of God's wrath is actual, not potential. It was actual, not potential, just like redemption, just like reconciliation. Actual and not potential. And so Paul says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, this is where, where the atonement affects our life in, in an outworking way. If God so loved us, and we also ought to love one another. If God thought that way of us while we were enemies, then how should we love one another? How should we love one another? So when we think of these things, when we think of the atonement, when we think of the reality of, of these theological debate sometimes that you pick up in books and this whole issue of Calvinism against Arminianism and all these kinds of things that have gone on through the ages. 
I don't think we need to be all that confused about it. I think we can look at it through the terminology of Scripture and see how the Bible actually speaks about it. And when we hear the Bible speak, we're hearing God speak. And this is what God thinks. This is how God describes the terminology that He is calling us to rest in. And so if God describes it that way, then we don't need to be confused about it. We don't need to apologize for it. And it causes us really to wonder as to why God would save any of us. Why me? That's the reality. Why me? Why would God save me? Well, next time I want to I kind of return to Romans chapter 8 and look at those terms there in that golden chain because I think it's important to this whole idea. And then after that, after the new year, we'll get into some of these, these verses, some of these places that people go and say, see, doesn't that mean that Jesus died for everybody? Because we hear this in evangelism. We hear it often, right? You hear evangelistic messages. God died, Christ died for your sins. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know that. All I know is Christ died for sinners like you and me. I could say that with accuracy, but I don't know if he died for you. I only know that is if you express faith in Jesus Christ and you actually believe God saves you. Then I could say Christ died for you. But I don't know it otherwise. At least not from how the Bible speaks to it. There is no universal salvation. Therefore, we cannot say there's a universal atonement. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for our time together just today, this opportunity to be in your word. All these things stretch our thinking, I'm sure. Even my own words tonight maybe haven't been clear to some. I trust that you will help with that. Iron those things out. Cause us to be wise in the word. Not be embarrassed or not be um, afraid to proclaim the truth as we understand your word. Even if that means, Lord, that people don't want to be around us. That's not what we want. It's not what we desire. We certainly want to be around others. and We want to tell them about the great truth of the gospel. We know that the gospel divides. Men hate the truth. So help us to have humility, wisdom, love, gentleness, be like Christ. Just like Christ weeping over Jerusalem, saying, I would have gathered you in like a mother hand gathers her chicks, but you would not. Lord, to hear the Lord of glory say that, is a challenge to our own hearts as we look out and see the lost world. Help us to have the humility of Christ. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.